Hello, and welcome to the Providence College Podcast. My name is Joe Carr. This is a special edition, as our guest is Father Brian Shanley, the president of Providence College, recording this today as a video in addition to the podcast. On July 1st, a couple of things will happen with respect to Father Shanley. He will hit 13 years as president of PC, and he will begin a six-month sabbatical. Father, let's begin by talking about that latter point. How did the sabbatical come about, and what are some of your plans? Well, I... I know a lot of other college presidents, especially in the Big East, and a few years ago, the president of DePaul said to me that he was taking a six-month sabbatical. And I said, how'd you pull that off? And he said, well, I told the board that if they wanted me to keep going, that I, I needed some time off. And then he told me another guy that I know down at Loyola, um, he had negotiated a six-month sabbatical at the 10-year mark. And I was in my 10th year, but we were in the middle of a campaign. There are too many things going on, so I filed it in my head and said, I should have negotiated a sabbatical when I got into my uh, third term as, as president. And I've been talking about it with the board that at some point I'd like to step back and recharge and take a break. And the stars seem to fall in alignment right around now because we finished the capital campaign, we finished the centennial of the college, we went through the um, reaccreditation process and that went well. I'm rotating off a couple of boards that took a lot of my time from the Big East to accreditation. And I suddenly saw a window starting this summer where I thought, you know, I could leave right now and there are great people here. Um, we're gonna finish the um, strategic planning process probably this summer in the fall. If I'm ever going to get a chance, this is the window. And so for the last six months or so, I've been kind of planning this time, and it still looks like the right time for me, and I'm, I'm really excited about it. So only 12 people have sat in your chair, so certainly your story is distinctive. There are things about it, though, that are sort of quintessentially Providence College, and I think one of the things that comes to mind is the multi-generational aspect sure. of your story. Your father was a PC graduate. Your mother worked here. Tell us about your parents and your other family connections. Yeah, so my dad came here as an Army veteran after the Second World War, and he grew up in a Dominican parish in New Haven, St. Mary's. And so uh, the story I tell, I don't know if it exactly went like this, when my father came home from the war, went back to the parish, and the Dominican said to him, you should think about Providence College. So I don't think he applied to any other school. Uh, he got in, obviously, to Providence College. And the GI Bill was what really changed his life and the life of so many people, and even the whole families, because I was looking at, my father was a newspaper reporter after he left Providence College, and I have his old clippings at home, and we had family in this weekend for my niece graduating, and I was looking at some of my father's columns, and one of the last ones he wrote was a tribute to his mother. And so he interviewed her, almost in a mock interview, and, and she told her story to him, and she said, I only went to school for three years. She was born in Longford, Ireland, on, in farm country, and she said, then I had to work. And she said, I delivered milk. And so my father's parents had very little education. My father finished high school here. And then if it weren't for the war and the GI Bill, my father would probably never have gone to college. Instead, he ended up here, got a great education. He was an English major. He went to the Columbia School of Journalism, uh, came back to Providence and was a newspaper reporter for 15 years. And then 
I think when my twin and I were born, he decided with five kids he needed to make more money, went into advertising. And uh, when my mother had us uh, and we were in school, she went back to school to get a librarian's degree, a master's in library science at URI. She worked at the East Greenwich Town Library for a while, then the Providence job opened up. And she was 25 years working as the cataloger here at Providence College. So between my dad and, and my mother, I guess I was uh, fated to come here. But I've had lots of family here. My niece just graduated. I have two nephews who have graduated. I have another niece who's here in, in continuing ed. I have a brother who graduated from here. So we've had, uh, this has been a very meaningful place for my family. Well, your mother was certainly familiar to many of us, a generation or more of PC students, and yep. somebody who's always around in the library. And it's worth pointing out, too, that Duffy and Shanley, the business your father founded with uh, Mr. Duffy, is still thriving and a yes. going concern, doing very, very well. Yeah, Dave's a, a PC grad, and, you know, my father's advertising firm was kind of like the madman of the 60s, so this is in the 60s, and their big client was Zaire department stores, and my father was the account exec for Zaire. And when Zaire decided to shift its advertising account, that firm that my father worked for basically was like in shock. And my father decided, I need to reinvent myself. And he didn't really know what he was going to do. He ran into Dave Duffy, and Dave said, do you want to share office space? And the next, a year later, Duffy and Shanley is starting and still going strong today. I've heard you say that you didn't really expect that you would become a Providence College student. Tell us about what led you here as, as a student in the late 70s. Well, when I was in high school, I was really good at school, and uh, I thought I could go anywhere I wanted. I had a really good GPA. I'm a good test taker. I had the brochures for IVs and all this stuff, and uh, going into my senior year, my, my parents sat me down the summer before my college senior, excuse me, my high school senior year, and had what in my mind, for the rest of my life, I've always referred to as the talk. And I can see it visibly today. I'm sitting in the room, my parents are sitting across from me, and my father was the one doing the talking as usual. And he basically said, look, Brian, um, if you want to go to some of these fancy schools that you're looking at, um, here's how much money we'll give you, and you're going to have to earn the rest and take out loans. But he said, if you go to Providence College, because your mother gets free tuition there, because she was faculty member, we will pay the room and board so you get out of here. And then um, we will pay for your law school, or help you pay for law school, which was my goal at the time. And I remember sitting there thinking to myself, my father is making eminent sense. Uh, and I still remember one thing my mother said to me, they have a great honors program at Providence College. You're going to get a really good education there. So as I reflected on my parents' offer to me, and in those days there was no real merit money. If your family could afford it, you were going to pay. And so I scrapped my plans uh, to go to a big shot school and settled, in my mind, to come to Providence College. And I thought I was bigger and better than Providence College, and I was bowled over when I got here to realize that this was the perfect place for me. So it's, it was divine providence in hindsight, uh, but at the time I remember being disappointed that I couldn't or that I, I was not going to go to some of the schools that my friends were going to go to, but I ended up getting the best education of anyone that I knew. 
and as you said before, it was during that time when you realized that God was calling you to the priesthood and to the Dominican order, and you've characterized that as having been a surprise to you. You said you were talking, thinking about law school, and then all of a sudden a, a very big turn. Yeah, I came here wanting to be a lawyer, and I wanted to change the world, get into politics. Actually, my nephew Evan is kind of living out what I thought my life was going to be like, and he went through here, poli-sci, went to law school, now he's in the He's a state rep. Uh, that might have been my alternative universe life. Um, but what happened to me when I was here is I, I started to get a little more serious about my faith, but I still didn't think I was going to be a priest. I just started to go to church a little bit more. The Dominicans that I met were incredibly impressive to me as preachers. And one in particular, uh, Tom Coskrin, was my first theology professor here. and. He was amazingly smart, and he took an interest in me, and he's the first one, sort of somewhere in my freshman year, he said, you should think about being a Dominican. And I remember saying to him, uh, thank you, Father, I'll, I'll give that some thought, but I don't think so. <laughs> and uh, I won't go through all my trials and tribulations, but I waxed and waned for the whole time that I was here. There were moments when I thought, uh, the Dominicans were the thing I was supposed to do, and then there were moments when I thought, no, I don't think so, and I literally went right up through my first semester of senior year, still not sure which way God wanted me to go, and um, ended up joining the Dominicans, and here I am. Some of that contemplation certainly happened in this space where we're sitting right now, the Center for Catholic and Dominican Studies. When we were students, it was a primary chapel. You remember anything about your prayer or worship in, in this space as you, were, as you were considering this vocation? I can remember a lot of brilliant homilies here. Um, Father Heath was certainly a memorable preacher. Uh, Father Cunningham, Father Cosgren, just a lot of the Dominicans that I got to know, they just really, I had not heard sermons like I heard when I was sitting here. And that made a deep uh, impact on me. And I used to stop, especially when I was wrestling with God my senior year. I lived on Vesey Street, and I used to walk home from the library past this chapel. And very often I would just sit in the dark in here and just say to God, just tell me what you want me to do. You're driving me nuts right now. And I told this publicly, so I'm not telling tales out of school. Um, I used to stare at that crucifix right there. It's the same one that was always here. And I would say, would you just nod your head? Tell me. And I tell people that, you know, we often look for some kind of what I call a burning bush moment where you get the voice from the cloud, you know, I want you to be a priest. And instead, what happens is God talks to us in much more ordinary and quiet ways. And as the more I reflected not having a voice from the heavens, it was like, I, I began to see little signs in what was going on around me, things that I read. I remember once something Father Ertl said to me um, when I was talking with him about this. He was the chaplain at the time. And I just began to realize, no, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, people always ask you, were you certain? I said, no, I wasn't certain. You don't have to be certain. You just have to believe that this is what God wants you to try. And so I did. Your connections to PC remained intact in the early part of your career. You worked in residence life 
here. You were a member of the Board of Trustees. But then in 2005, you're president, the 12th president of the college. What sort of characterized PC when you became president? What did you see as the, the strengths and the challenges you were facing? Yeah, when I became president, it was a, a pretty big surprise to me. I knew I was in the running, but I thought somebody else was going to get it. And I still remember getting the phone call. And what they tell you, they sent me to Harvard University for a school for new presidents. And they said, your first job when you become a college president is to assess your institution. The, the worst thing you can do is go in right away thinking you know exactly what this institution needs. So I did spend my first year assessing here and trying to figure out what are the things that were going well, what were the things that were not going well, um, what personnel I thought were strong. I had to make a couple of decisions about some VP positions. And, um, you know, I could see at the time that, that fundraising wasn't near where it needed to be. And uh, so fast forward 13 years later, we're really good at fundraising right now. I don't think we were when I started, and I think it was because we didn't invest. Um, and so that was one of the things that early on was a big learning curve for me because I'd never had to raise money before. Um, so that piece of things, I thought, uh, was something that we really needed to invest in. Um, you know, I think the, the curriculum, uh, we had not been able to revise the core curriculum in 15 or 20 years. And so trying to lay the groundwork for that early on, as you remember, it, it took us five years to agree on something. And that was a project uh, I thought, I better try this now when I'm a new president and they'd there's not enough ill will against me that, that I might be able to get this thing through. So I think it was probably the academic piece. I think it was the fundraising piece. And also, you know, admissions. Um, you know, that's been, because we're a tuition-driven institution, that's always a concern for a college president is how are we doing with admissions. And, you know, we've had some ups and downs in that, but we're doing really well today. It seemed you, the college and the country, in fact, and the world, weathered an economic downturn. And then we moved toward 2011, which seems to me was a turning point in many ways. A new strategic plan, the launch of the Our Moment fundraising campaign, which turned out to be a tremendous success. What were some of the dynamics at play there when the college leadership was making decisions about taking these big steps forward? Yeah, I think in the aftermath of the economic downturn, Everybody was just trying to hold on. And I'm proud to say that we didn't lay anybody off. And we kept hiring faculty. So that, you know, one of the things I'm most proud of is that we've hired over 65% of the faculty since I've been here. And we have a very strong faculty. And that was a period where a lot of colleges, particularly if you were endowed, uh, heavily endowed and reliant on that, people were laying faculty off. They made a lot of cuts. You know, we had to tighten our belt but we got through without having gouged ourselves in any way. So it was like, as we came out of that downturn and things started to look quasi-normal again, where you could see a future where we're like, okay, now we need to go forward with this fundraising. You obviously weren't gonna start a capital campaign in 2008 or 2009. Um, so as, as the economy started to return to normal, we were able to start planning for the future of Providence College and um, that's what we've been celebrating the last year or so, is we've, we've accomplished a lot. 
and the result is really a college transformed. Yeah. Uh, what are some of the things you think about first when you think of the progress? You mentioned faculty, but of the most recent seven years, what comes to mind? Well, um, the academic buildings, um, having spent a lot of time in the Ruane Humanities Center and having David McCullough back who did the dedication there, the fact that we have that building, which every single Providence College student goes into when they're freshmen and sophomore, that sense of continuity and, and the beauty of the building. You know, one of the things we said um, at graduation is that you guys take the Ruane Center for granted because it's been here the whole time you've been here, but five years ago it didn't exist. Um, so the Ruane Center and sort of, you know, the Ryan um, Center for Business Studies is another, I, I consider that building as such a beautiful building and the business school has grown since we've been here and it's one of the challenges we have is in this environment the liberal arts people feel a little bit beleaguered because the number of majors is going down, number of business majors is going up, but again all those business majors are going to Ruane for two years and taking Western Civ and they're taking theology and philosophy and they're getting this well-rounded education and the building is beautiful and it makes a huge statement. When you drive up Huxley Avenue now and you see this beautiful new rink, this unbelievable stadium, and then you see the Ryan Center, now this beautiful circle that looks like a million bucks, and that now that Huxley is gone, behind there the campus really feels like one campus and I think you know the visuals coming in right now are just uh, amazing and I look out my window every day and I see the Ruane Fire Development Center being constructed I walk past the new science complex every morning going over to the Priory and I've walked through it it's going to be spectacular and it's just I, I just walk around and go this is amazing and you know, I was at Kincannon at lunch today with you, and I was thinking about, I think about Bill Kincannon every time I go in there, and it's like, that was the first big project. Is, you know, we used to have a fitness center in the basement of alumni that looked the same from 10 years ago when I was here. When I came back, I'm like, oh, we gotta do better than this. So, um, I'm, just the transformation is the most obvious piece. It is, it is stunning. I still have trouble getting over the disappearance of Huxley Avenue, yeah. the idea that that just... Oh, and that softball field looks yeah, great now, and these kids at Guzman have no idea how good they have it. <laughs> uh, you mentioned construction that's underway right now or ongoing, the science complex just outside the Ruane Fire Development Center, and the first stage, or the first part of the Ruane Fire Development Center, I should say, that's the, the construction project underway. Still a lot to happen there. Another strategic plan imperative was diversity. You have described that as a work in progress. So when you look at sort of the, the near-term goals you have and the things you hope to see accomplished before very long, what kinds of things come to mind? Well, this class that we've just recruited is the most diverse class in the history of Providence College. Over 19% uh, of the incoming freshman class are students of color. When I first started, that number was 8%. So we've gone from 8% to 19%. And we've become more diverse. And what you realize in, in, the, in the work that we do is that numerical diversity is one thing, but inclusion is something very different. You can have a high number, but if those students don't feel like they're really a part of the community, then you haven't achieved your goal. And I think what we've discovered is we've been successful with diversity, uh, but we're still working on inclusion, and that's a work that we're doing 
in the classroom, it's in the residence halls, it's in our workforce, it's with our professoriate. Um, so that's a work that's an ongoing work and it's, it's America. And we have the same tensions and challenges that, that our country does. And one thing that is really salient in all this is that the fastest growing population in the Catholic Church and in the United States is the Hispanic population. And that, our numbers there are up. And our, the future of our church and of Providence College is tied to that uh, population group. And so I see that number just going up uh, in the future and it's something that has to be an intentional focus of our recruitment efforts. What are some of the biggest challenges in being the president of Providence College in 2018? I would say most college presidents would tell you a lot of it's money. You know, they do surveys of college presidents, what keeps you up at night. Um, and we're very healthy financially, but I always were, you know, I wish we had more resources. And as we look to our future, trying to get to the point where we have an endowment that can support more of what it is that we're trying to do here. So the financial piece, I do worry about admissions all the time, even though our applications have been going up every year and our yield is going up and everything looks good. Still the Northeast college age population, which is our home market, is in decline. So that makes you worried like, how are we bucking this trend and how long can we continue you know, to do that going forward? Um, I worry about the old buildings on this campus. Um, we've managed to put in a lot of new buildings and we've renovated a lot of old buildings. But I know, you know, in the next three to five years, we've got to upgrade our residence halls. You know, if I walk into Joe's or Guzman, where I was as a freshman, it kind of looks the same, and the furniture is maybe a little bit different. Um, so we're going to have to take a look at the part of the campus that used to be the Chapin Hospital and go, okay, how are we going to invest? And what's our strategy going to be for enrollment going forward? Um, you know, America's a in an interesting phase of life, and we see some of the same political tensions on campus that we find in our country. You know, there's tension about what does it mean to be Catholic these days. There are people that love Pope Francis, and there are people who think Francis is a little out there. Um, I happen to be a Pope Francis guy myself. Um, so, you know, there are lots of things to be concerned about, but that's just part of being a college president. You're supposed to worry. There's also a dimension of spiritual leadership in a, a role like yours. What, what are your thoughts on your role as, uh, with respect to pastoral care for our community? Yeah, I, I mean, I uh, try to say Sunday Mass on a regular basis with the students because I think it's important for them to see that we're all priests and preachers, first of all. And... Um, I love to preach, so any chance I get to do it, like at commencement, it's, it's a great blessing for me. So I think it's important for me to continue to have that pastoral presence. I wish I had more time for the nitty-gritty of it all, but the job is pretty consuming. And, and I think you, you have to have some sense of spiritual leadership, because this is, in the end, it's about getting people to God. Um, and education is a really uh, important place with everything that's happening here. And even based on my own experience, I know that if we can hook you when you're in college, you're, you're likely to stay in it for a while. If we don't, it could be until you have kids or you get married or, you know, baptisms that people fall out of the church while they're here. People fall into the church while they're here. And, and that's as important to us as getting you out with a degree, is getting our students in line with God. 
You said you love to preach. I don't know anybody who would dispute the notion that you're a particularly gifted preacher. What is it about that that you love? How do you feel when you're preaching? Um, it's the happiest thing that I do. Um, but it's, in some ways, it's, it's harder than it used to be for me because I know people don't see that, but I don't have the time that I used to have to think things through, so I've gotten better able. It's like I tell people, I just need an idea. I need an angle, and when I get one, I know how to kind of flesh it out and do it that way. But I wish I had time to preach more because it is, uh, for me, the, the, the most enriching thing that I do. And then, God bless the Holy Spirit comes through sometimes when you do. You know, every priest has the experience of sometimes giving a homily that you thought wasn't very good, and somebody says, I really needed to hear that. And then you think you're brilliant and nobody says anything. <laughs> it's like, okay, it's not my control, it's the Lord. So. You have a number of outside interests. You read an awful lot. You like to play golf. You mentioned you're planning a trip with your brothers. Uh, martial arts. Tell, tell me about that uh, aspect of your life, how you came to that interest, and what does that do for you? Well, that goes back to um, my time at PC as a young priest. When I came back here after I was ordained, I was put in charge of then Stephen Hall as the hall director I was teaching philosophy, and I got involved in a lot of clubs and orgs on campus. I was the rugby club advisor for a while. And, um, but one of the clubs that approached me was the karate club. There was a club on campus, and they asked me if I would be the moderator. And I said, sure. And I said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try a class, because I've always been kind of interested in that. And so I took a karate class for the three years that I was here, and by the end of my time here, the, there was a, a recent grad who was the instructor, and he and I became very good friends, and he was branching out from karate to a thing called Jeet Kune Do, which was Bruce Lee's invention. And so he taught me some of that while he was here, and then when I went to grad school, I found an instructor in Toronto, and every Tuesday and Thursday night, I'd go to Jeet Kune Do class about a mile from where I was living, and then when I got to Washington, I found another Jeet Kune Do instructor and studied it for five years or so. So I did that for almost 10 years. And then I had um, an issue with a disc. And I decided, you know what, I'm going to stop fighting and um, do something that doesn't put that stress. Because Jeet Kune Do was a lot about fighting. We were sparring all the time. But I missed it. And so I walked away from it for a while. And then I saw a flyer at Catholic U for... Uh, an obscure martial art that I'd never heard of called Xing Yi, and it said this is an internal martial art. So I said, well, I'm going to try that. And it turns out I was the only one that persevered through the whole semester with the instructor. And we became friendly, and he gave me some extra time, and I thought, you know, I, I really like this. So he left school, and I found a teacher, and so I started studying Xing Yi. And I've been studying Xing Yi for probably 20 years right now, and when I got here, I found this great martial arts school with uh, my teacher, Wen Ching Wu. So he segued me through Xing uh, Yi, and then he taught me a thing called Bagua, which I've been doing for 10 years. And for the last five years, there's another martial art called Lu He Ba Fa, and I'm butchering all the pronouncements. Um, and it's just for me, it's a form of exercise. It is. Um, I take a private lesson with him. He's one of the, he's like, I tell people it's better than paying for therapy. He's such a good guy. Uh, and it's 
trained me to use my body differently. I think I'm healthier as a result of it. It's very challenging, uh, the, the movements and getting them down right. So it, for me, it's just a chance to do something that's healthy and that, you know, makes me more supple and stretched. And, um, and I, I have a heavy bag in my basement and I tell people I, I, I I pound it um, several times a week, and it helps me with my stress management. <laughs> On the subject of things that are physical, let's talk for a bit about sports. Which you and I rarely have a conversation that doesn't involve sports, a big sure. interest to both of ours. But uh, Friar Sports, uh, there's been tremendous success in yes. many areas since you've become president. What's the, what's the basic value of having an athletic, varsity athletics program like this one? Well, I, I always answer that question by saying the primary value has to be for the student-athletes. If that weren't the case, there's, we have no business having sports teams here. And I really believe, and I've seen it, playing a varsity sport at a high level like we do here provides character benefits for our student-athletes that they would not get doing something else. And I've seen it uh, time and time with the, what you learn about teamwork, what you learn about discipline, what you learn about making sacrifices, what you learn from a good coach about life. Talk about transferable skills, because most of these kids are not going to play pro sports, uh, but they're going to take what they learn from their athletic experience and add it to their life, to their kid's life. Most of them are going to go on to be coaches, and that's such an important role in a young person's life, is finding a good coach. So first and foremost, I think there's educational benefit for our student-athletes. Secondly, it provides a marketing tool for Providence College, which is huge. I mean, for a lot of people, when I go around, I'm always wearing PC stuff. It's like, oh, you guys play basketball. I'm like, yeah, they don't know anything else. So they just know we play basketball. Or if they're hockey fans, they're like, well, you won the national championship. So I think that uh, high-powered sports, and particularly basketball because of the television contract that we have with Fox, the fact that you know, we get the name out there, that we're in the NCAA tournament. What is that worth from a marketing point of view that we're on national television playing in the NCAA tournament or that Ed Cooley is splitting his pants at Madison Square Garden on, again on national TV, the most watched championship in Big East history. Um, so there's tremendous marketing benefits that come from this. And, Finally, there's a sense of it builds community. Um, you, you, some people stay attached to PC through following sports. And some folks only come back to campus uh, because they want to watch a sporting event and they see what we've done and they say, wow, um, can I get more involved? So I think athletics uh, brings a number of really important benefits to PC. I've heard you refer to coaches as being teachers. In the specific context I remember is Nate Lehman. Yeah. You've talked about what a great teacher he is. Could you talk a little bit more about that and, and what a coach's role is in terms of teaching and developing a young person? Yeah, when I first was here, Dave Gavitt was a great mentor to me about athletics, and his mantra always was, it's the coaches are the most important decisions you make because they're the ones touching lives of the student athletes. And when I sit in on, sometimes on recruiting, if they think it's gonna help that the president is there, and I do this for any of the coaches, but more for Nate and Ed, I always look into the parents' eyes and I say, the most important decision you make is not about the college president or even the school. It's 
who do you want your son in your son's life 365 24/7 and what impact do you want it to have on them and i say to the basketball players i would trust ed cooley with my kid and i say the same thing with nate i've seen what nate has done for these guys so you see them as teachers of their sport but also they're both really good men and so are our, our other coaches but there's there's more to a student athlete interaction with a coach than just uh, i want you to run this play over here or get it to the corner over there there's a lot of life that goes on and then eventually some big decisions that they may have to make about their own future so coaches are really the most it's people because i also think uh Bob Driscoll has been a huge part uh the leader of what we've been able to accomplish in basketball and you know in my time here we've had some low moments where we weren't real good in athletics at least not in the way that we are now and now we're consistently across the board and sustainably good uh Bob was here then Bob is here now and Bob has grown and he's become a great athletic director but again his coaches trust him and they trust his leadership um so i i think i don't take any of this for granted because i know it could go away and the other piece that needs to be told to is the commitment we made for facilities um when we were hiring Nate the big sticking point for him was that rink we hadn't really renovated that rink since we built it and now we've got one of the best rinks in the country and the facilities that you know we've been able to get the dunk redone um this new Ruane Fire Development Center for Ed is going to be a game changer on the recruiting front Ed's going to have all the toys now so and the philanthropic support that has made that possible is amazing again compared to where we were 10 years ago so when you get really good facilities and really good coaches you can be really good <laughs> and we are This idea of uh, coaches as teachers kind of brings us to where I wanted to land this discussion. Fundamentally, this is a place of teaching and learning. You mentioned the faculty, uh two-thirds or so have joined the faculty since you became president 13 years ago. When you think about what's happening today in our classrooms and laboratories at PC, what how proud are you of the level of, of the scholarship and and the and the teaching and learning activity that you see? I think teaching and learning here has changed so much from when I went through because the model when I was a student was you sat there and you wrote down notes and then you kind of memorized what you wrote and spit it up on an exam and you might have raised your hand to ask some questions but it was fundamentally a passive model of learning the teacher is the source of all knowledge and throws it out there to you and you try to get as much of it down as you can. And while a a great lecture of a brilliant teacher is still an incredibly powerful and educatable moment, what has happened on college campuses and you see it here is that active learning on the part of students is really the critical piece for the transformation that you want. So our professors are still doing a lot of brilliant lecturing um but in the sciences for example especially the new building we have it's experiments it's hands on it's doing research and our science programs are very strong and you see the interactions between the professors and the students you see them working together in labs that and they're writing papers together and there's just a a lot more than 
you think of biology and sitting in the old aula and Albertus Magnus and looking at slides and writing notes down. Now it's very hands-on. The business school, you go in that school. And that's the beauty of Ruain and Ryan and the other classroom buildings that we, we build, including the science complex. We've been able to build to the specification of the teachers. What do you want? What kind of spaces? And you go into Ryan and you see all these classrooms that you can be flipped immediately and say, okay, I want you working in a group. Like you're gonna trade this stock over here, this for you, or you're gonna give me advice over there. And you, you can do that and you tell them flip around and you, you can use the, the electronic uh, media. You can get Bloomberg in there. There's just so much more stimulation and interaction. And the beauty of all these new academic spaces is that we can tailor it to what they want. And students involved in real research. Exactly. Being yeah. conducted by faculty members, really interesting stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. It's very different from the more passive model that, that we went through. And you're one of the teachers. So you teach a class every fall semester. What do you get out of that? Uh, it's like therapy for me because it reminds me of the central activity of Providence College, which is teaching and learning, because those two things go together. If the students aren't learning, you're not teaching. You may be talking, but you're not teaching. So I have carved out, uh, after the first couple of years when I thought I kind of know what I'm doing, I, I can get back in the classroom. I teach 10 kids in the honors program, and it's a required ethics course because we still, all of our students have to take ethics. And for me, it's the high point of, of my week because I just love being able to shut the door, go into my uh, conference room, which is where I have the class, and go, I don't need to think about the college's problems. Let's talk about the meaning of life, because that's where Aristotle starts and says, what would it mean to live a life that turns out well? And that's the fundamental ethical question. And because they're honor students, they're really, really smart, and uh, they come prepared, and you know, it's just, uh, for me, it's, it's a great experience and personally very enriching and rewarding. And it's one of the things I'm going to miss the most about being on sabbatical is not teaching, but I'll take it up again when I get back. Last question. What are your fondest hopes for PC and its future? Um, you know, I see us on this trajectory where I w I've been saying this for my whole time. I want to be in the same sentence as Georgetown, Boston College, Notre Dame, Holy Cross, Villanova, Providence College, when you think about you know, leading Catholic schools, that we're in that first sentence of those kinds of schools. And I've seen us make a lot of progress to get in that sentence um, these days. And I wanna, I wanna solidify that. I, I want us to be a nationally recognized premier Catholic liberal arts college. And um, I think we're on that road, but we're not there yet. And that's my hope and prayer and dream going forward is that we just keep moving in that direction because I think we've made a lot of progress. But um, as David McCullough said in his address yesterday, there is no foreordained future. History is made by the character and choices of human beings. And that's the beauty of, of human history, and that's the future of Providence College is the character and choices of the people here who are part of it, and hopefully we'll get the right characters and make the right choices. Father, thanks for your time. You're welcome. We enjoyed this very much. Thanks. And thank you for joining us. Providence College podcasts are available at all the usual places, and they're on the college's YouTube channel. Feedback is welcome at podcast 
at providence.edu. For our producer, Chris Judge, I'm Joe Carr. Until next time.